Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have one brand new movie to review for you and two others that are relatively new. They've come out within the last two weeks, but I haven't gotten a chance to review them until now. And there were many other new movies from this weekend that I really, really wanted to review for you, but I just didn't have time. So I'm going to have to save them until next week, but I'll start with the newest and what will most likely be the one that gets the most attention. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Lyle Lyle Crocodile. This is a live action animation blend of a musical comedy directed by Will Speck and Josh Gordon, who are a directing team who has brought us such feature films as directors as Blades of Glory. That's the movie starring uh, Will Ferrell and John Heater. They also brought The Switch, which I haven't seen. And uh, 2016's Office Christmas Party, which is one of those films that kind of went under the radar over the last six years. But I have the feeling that cable TV will pick that movie up and people will see that for the fun movie that it is. Lyle Lyle Crocodile is probably riding on the coattails of the Paddington series, the the two movies that have come out so far about Paddington Bear. It doesn't quite live up to the quality of the Paddington movies, but like Paddington, it is based on a children's story of the same name and its prequel, The House on East 88th Street, which was written and illustrated by Bernard Weber. The movie stars Javier Bardem as a hack magician uh, by the name of Hector P. Valenti. Actually, his... Magic tricks are pretty good, but his dancing and singing is a lot better, which makes me want to think that he would want to ditch the magic tricks instead and just be a singer and a dancer. But because this is a movie musical, it makes you think that people who are very skilled in singing or dancing are not all that special from everyone else. And that's okay. But Hector P. Valenti is one of those guys who is trying to get on one of those TV talent shows. In this case, the TV talent show in the movie is called Show Me What You Got, which for a fictional TV talent show is actually a really good name. It makes me think that some TV network like Fox would pick that name up immediately, but this fictionalized world has it cornered. But anyway, Javier Bardem is down on his luck and also avoiding creditors when he goes into a pet store at one point and when he's trying to find uh, some kind of pet for his act, he comes across a little crocodile who he names Lyle who has an uncanny ability not only to dance to music but also to sing English words to it. And Lyle is voiced by a young singer-songwriter by the name of Sean Mendez. And Sean Mendez is not particularly well-known to people who watch movies like I do, but even I who don't who doesn't um keep track of pop music knows Sean Mendez's songs because over the last five years or so, they've been largely unavoidable. Songs like Stitches, Treat You Better, and There's Nothing Holding Me Back. If you have a pulse and you haven't been living under a rock, you know Sean Mendez's music. And it is pretty impressive how successful Sean Mendez has been at just the age of 24. He's accomplished so far in his young lifetime what a lot of sing- singer-songwriters only dream of accomplishing. As the voice of Lyle, he does very well with singing, but it is kind of a mystery to me how Lyle can mimic music, uh, mimic pop, pop songs, and throughout the course of this movie, is able to sing his own original songs, yet he can't speak. And I think for that reason, the Lyle Crocodile in this movie is not as charming as Paddington Bear was in his respective live-action animated hybrid movies, but this movie makes you want to think that he is as charming. But unfortunately, I think when he's singing and he's dancing, he comes alive, but unfortunately, he doesn't quite have that sort of 
magnetic personality that the movie expects you to have him have. But anyway, Hector Valente is squatting in a pretty nice New York City apartment in the uh, attic. And for some reason, he's squatting while he also has the deed to the apartment. I don't know exactly why, but that's what the movie leads you to believe. And you're also not sure whether you should be charmed by Hector Valente, who's played by Javier Bardem, or if you think he's just an opportunist, because the movie seems to be going back and forth. Javier Bardem, to his credit, plays... Hector Valente very well, but the problem is the movie doesn't really set Hector Valente up to be either um, sympathetic or just a sleazebag. But the movie goes into very familiar territory when there is a family named the Prims, who is consisting of Joseph Prim, who is a teacher at a local private high school who's played by Scoot McNary. There's his wife, Katie Prim, who's played by Constance Wu, and their young, precocious son, Josh Prim, who's played by Winslow Fegley. And the movie kind of goes into very familiar territory when young Josh, who's precocious but also anally retentive, he's, he's smart, but you also realize that he's smart to a fault, especially when he'd be able to tell you how many people were, were robbed in this certain section of Manhattan to which they're moving. But of course, this part of Manhattan is a dream for anyone, let alone any New Yorker in which to live. But Josh eventually finds this giant alligator in his apartment, is scared as, pre- as predicted, but then eventually learns to love this alligator or rather crocodile. I'm not sure what the difference is between the two because I'm not in I'm not a zoologist. But either way, the 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 story arc between Josh Prim and Lyle is somewhat predictable. Also, when the when the parents find out that this crocodile is A living in their apartment and B can sing and dance, the so, the same sort of character the character trajectory that you find in movies like E.T. and also most recently the Paddington movies sort of come about. And the movie is relatively predictable, although once you find out that Lyle can sing and dance and has stage fright, you kind of know where the movie's going. I actually was reminded in the first part of the movie when Hector Valente is raising Lyle and trying to break him into show business. That reminded me a lot of the Michigan J frog Warner brothers cartoons, the Looney tunes cartoons where there's this opportunist who finds a singing and dancing frog. And while the song, while the frog is singing and dancing like a professional, the owner is trying his hardest to get talent agents and audiences to see the, see and hear the frog. But when he finally gets the opportunity, the frog is done singing and all he is is a, a frog with a top hat. But I think that if they, they were going to go that way, they might as well have just made a Michigan J frog movie. But then again, that would have been a 10 minute animated segment. That's just played over and over uh, again for at least 80 minutes. So Lyle Lyle crocodile has some very good music as you might expect. I loved Javier Bardem as Hector Valente. I just wish the movie could have made of its mind whether they that he wanted to be a, a good guy or a bad guy or just an annoying presence. Instead, they tried to make him all at once, which sort of threw the balance of the movie off a little bit. And Constance Wu, I'll see anything Constance Wu is in because she is just that charming. And her choices of movies have been good so far, especially with movies like Crazy Rich Asians and Hustlers. And this movie she probably did for the same reason the other actors did it, you know, for the kids. I really did not like Winslow Fegley as uh, the child protagonist because he was way too anally retentive for me. And once you hear him rattling off statistics about the crime rate in the part of the neighborhood, as well as the instances of getting sick, I just wasn't really cheering for him. And I wish they'd rather throw him in a zoo rather than Lyle Lyle crocodile. But 
I give this movie, Lyle Al Crocodile, my rating of a strikeout because I could tell that this movie was trying to be like Paddington Bear and was based on a book that is similar to Paddington Bear, but it didn't have the charm of the other two Paddington movies. And I thought there were some other plot elements that we'd either seen before or were quite contrived in this film that I didn't need it. With that said, I did like the adult actors in the movie, especially Javier Pardem and Constance Wu. I think kids will enjoy it, but not nearly as much as Paddington. And this adult wasn't quite charmed by it because it had so many elements of a children's film that I had seen before. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie that I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Good House. This is a film that is based on a book that was written by Anne Leary, and the book was a best-selling novel, although there is one of the same name that is a horror novel, but not to be confused, The Good House is a film that takes place in Massachusetts and is a romantic drama about a realtor, Hildy Good, and she's played by Sigourney Weaver. She's a, a relatively successful realtor who has a myriad of problems. Probably the biggest of her problems is that she was mentoring uh, another realtor in her hometown in Western uh, in eastern Massachusetts, south of Boston, and this realtor stole many of her clients. So life for Massachusetts realtor Hildy Good begins to unravel when she hooks up with an old flame of hers, and this old flame is a handyman who lives in town whose name is Frank Getchell, and he's played by Kevin Klein. Now, Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver had previously acted together in the movie The Ice Storm, which also takes place in New England, although The Ice Storm took place in Connecticut. And while The Good House takes place modern day, um, the movie The Ice Storm, as well as the book, takes place in suburban Connecticut in 1973. And the relationship that Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver's characters had in that movie is not nearly as poignant or as healthy as the one they have in this movie. But I can't help but think that Kevin Klein was miscast in this film, particularly because Frank Getchell is supposed to be a handyman and also a local in this town that is up and coming through gentrification. And the accent that Kevin Klein tries to do, the Massachusetts accent, I could tell you is probably one of the worst Massachusetts accents that I've ever heard. And this is in a year where there are a lot of great actors like Kevin Klein who have tried to put on accents but have failed. Most notably, Tom Hanks in not one but two movies tried to put on a Dutch accent in Elvis and an Italian accent in the live-action animated polarizing remake of Disney's Pinocchio. And of course, he failed in those instances. And... Sam Rockwell, who's another actor who's not only great, but another actor that I really like, tried to put on a British accent in See How They Run and was one of the primary reasons that movie was not quite as great as it could have been. And every time Kevin Klein, who is a native of Missouri, tried to put on a Massachusetts accent, I kind of rolled my eyes. But I believed Sigourney Weaver more as the local realtor in this uh, small picturesque town that reminded me a lot of uh, Hull, Massachusetts or Marblehead or one of those coastal towns that has a relatively affluent population. I believed her as somebody who was a native, but who worked her way up through going to UMass Amherst and then ultimately running her own realty company. But Zigourney Weaver didn't have 
a Boston accent or a Massachusetts accent in this film. And largely she didn't really have to have one. I still believed her as the character that she was supposed to be. And this movie has a lot of plot threads, a lot of subplots, including there's one woman who moves into town whose name's Rebecca, and she's played by Marina Baccarin. And there's also a local doctor who's considering moving to San Francisco, who's played by Rob Delaney. And it turns out that this doctor and this this Rebecca woman are have both having extramarital affairs, and they're both married. There's also a woman who's in town whose family is experiencing financial difficulties and also an autistic son and Hildy is trying to sell their uh, house and also trying to fix it up in order for them to sell it. There's also an all too brief appearance by Beverly D'Angelo who plays a childhood friend of Hildy's by the name of Mamie Lang, who unlike Hildy is an alcoholic who's not recovering. And I did think actually the subplot of Hildy being an an alcoholic in denial was probably one of the good parts of this film, but there were way too many supporting characters in addition to Beverly D'Angelo having way too little screen time. I thought actually she was going to have a lot more scenes with um, Sigourney Weaver and not to mention the fact that maybe she would have a drinking buddy in addition to that, but the movie didn't quite materialize Beverly D'Angelo's character. And that was unfortunately one of those subplots that I think should have been given a lot more depth. And there are also some other subplots involving Sigourney Weaver's character being, uh, interestingly psychic. She has, uh, a secretary who's way too young to work in her office, but who works there and also is not quite competent. I didn't think that subplot needed to be there. There was also a situation with Hildy's daughters, one of whom lives in town and is a stay-at-home mom, the other who lives in Brooklyn and is a starving artist who's getting by only from her real estate mother supporting her. And there were a lot of threads here and there, but ultimately when they tied together, they didn't quite get the payoff that maybe the book had. And I haven't seen, I haven't read uh, the book upon which the good house is based. I know that Anne Leary is one of those authors like Jody Piccolo or James Patterson that has her name. That's larger than the title of her book. But I think this movie could have been better in a lot of ways, but it is grounded by Sigourney Weaver's performance here. And Sigourney Weaver also has, her character has an issue where she is not only a recovering alcoholic who is in severe denial, but she also narrates her denial to the camera. Normally I would say this is lazy storytelling, but in this case, this is one of the instances where the narration was necessary or at least a nice touch for this story because it's, it's great when a character is in denial and telling the audience that how in denial she is, but not saying I'm in denial, but rather living that denial as she does here. But the good house is largely memorable. Thanks to Sigourney Weaver's performance It does have a lot of weaknesses, including way too many supporting performances or rather supporting ah, way too many subplots that ultimately don't tie together in the end and go nowhere. Some do, but many don't a very miscast Kevin Klein, but I'll still give the good house, my rating of a checkout because it's worth seeing for Sigourney Weaver. And if Sigourney Weaver is nominated for an Oscar for this movie, I wouldn't be surprised, but at the same time, if she is nominated, I wouldn't, I would probably expect her to lose based on the overall weaknesses of the good house. But she's probably the one thing about this film worth remembering.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Hocus Pocus 2. And this is a film that I'm a little late to the party to review because this movie premiered on Disney Plus on October 1st, 2022. It is still on Disney Plus and will likely be on Disney Plus indefinitely. But it is certainly a movie that, unlike its original 1993 predecessor, actually came out around Halloween. Now, the original Hocus Pocus came out on July 16th, 1993, even though it took place around Halloween 1993. It came out during Walt Disney's um, Renaissance period, where it came out with several animated films that are still considered classics to this day, and was largely a comeback for Walt Disney. But unlike in the 70s, um, Walt Disney, well, actually, exactly like in the 70s, Walt Disney Pictures came out with several live-action films that largely bombed when they were released in theaters, even during the early 90s. But unlike the live-action films that came out, um, that Walt Disney Pictures released in the 70s, the films that they released in the 90s have developed a cult following, especially Newsies, which uh, coincidentally, Kenny Ortega also directed in addition to the original Hocus Pocus film. And Hocus Pocus became somewhat of a cult classic for the younger crowd because of its repeat viewings on what used to be ABC Family and then ultimately became Freeform. And even to this day, Freeform is still showing the original Hocus Pocus film. Well, the original Hocus Pocus, I think, is a fun film to watch around Halloween, and it certainly has its good moments, especially the chemistry between the Sanderson sisters, specifically Winifred or Winnie Sanderson, the oldest of the trio, who's played by Bette Midler, Sarah Sanderson, the youngest of the trio, who's played by Sarah Jessica Parker, and Mary Sanderson, the dim-witted middle sister, who's played by Kathy Najimy. And the three actresses come back to reprise their roles in Hocus Pocus 2, which, unlike the original Hocus Pocus, was filmed in Rhode Island and in parts of Massachusetts, but not actually Salem, Massachusetts. And having been to Salem, Massachusetts myself during Halloween, the one major inaccuracy that both Hocus Pocus movies make is... They also take place on Halloween, but they don't um, show Salem, Massachusetts like it actually is on Halloween. In other words, crowded. <laughs> yeah. Salem, Massachusetts on October 31st, largely during the day, but also at night, makes Times Square in New York City look like small town America. It is that packed, and also just about everyone is wearing a costume. It's fun. It's, it's great to experience once in your life, but not something I would do every day. But in the context of the two Hocus Pocus movies, Salem, Massachusetts is a relatively small town. And in this movie, there are uh, two girls who are... Um, interested in witchcraft, there is Becca, who's played by Whitney Peake, and there's also Izzy, who is Becca's quirky best friend, who's played by Belisa Escobedo. And they're not nearly as interesting characters as the protagonists of the original Hocus Pocus film, but to this movie's credit, the movie doesn't do what the original Hocus Pocus did, which was a surprising amount of virgin shaming for teenagers. This is a Walt Disney film that's rated PG that's made for children. And there, and this movie shames a high schooler in the original Hocus Pocus film who, for being a virgin. Even his younger sister is shaming him for being a virgin. He's supposed to be a virgin. He's in high school, for God's sake. So I don't exactly know what, what that was all about, but the movie does actually poke fun at th some of the uh, virgin shaming. There's one scene where there's this sort of a town historian who's also into witchcraft and he's played by Sam Richardson, who is a very good young ish actor. He's in his late thirties, but he is 
explaining to some kids who are visiting his store, which also serves as a tribute to the reveal or uh, the notorious Sanderson sisters that they can only the Sanderson sisters can only come back from the dead if a virgin lights this mystic candle. And there's a child who says, What's a virgin? And Sam Richardson's character, whose name is Gilbert, is sort of taken aback by the question, but then he kind of stops and he says, A virgin is somebody who, well, um, hasn't lit a candle before. That kid is probably gonna find out that that that, that adult was lying as the um <laughs> as his life progresses, but it's still a good cover, um, (laughs) to explain to young children. I think that's actually one of the parts that this movie got right. But first of all, I didn't exactly buy Becca and Izzy, those two characters as being kids who were into witchcraft. And there's also a subplot where they have another friend whose name is Cassie, who's played by Lilia Buckingham, who used to be in their friendship circle, but isn't anymore. I didn't exactly think that part was needed, but then again, I guess if that friend wasn't in their circle, I might be comparing this movie to the craft for kids, but I highly doubt it in that case. But either way, Gilbert being the, uh, expert on witchcraft and knowing that Becca and Izzy are interested in witchcraft, give them a candle, which he doesn't think is the candle that will bring the Sanderson sisters back to life. But sure enough, they light it. Uh, Becca and Izzy do because, and because they're virgins, the Sanderson sisters come back to life. But the movie really goes off the rails when Becca and Izzy start to convince the Sanderson sisters that, They can't get younger from consuming the souls of children, but rather that they go to a local drugstore, which is actually Walgreens. And you can tell that Walgreens put a lot of product placement into this film because the next 20 minutes of the film feels like five Halloween-themed Walgreens commercials jammed right together. And it really does slow the pace of the movie, plus the antics that the Sanderson sisters are up to in the Walgreens isn't really all that funny. And they also have a gag that they borrowed directly from the original Hocus Pocus film, which is funny in the original Hocus Pocus film, but doesn't really work or is definitely feels like retread in this sequel. Also the movie does has those gags again and again, where the Sanderson sisters are mystified by the wonders of modern technology, like doors that open automatically or Alexa, but somehow they know the lyrics to Elton John's the bitches back, which because this movie is rated PG, they have to change to the witches back and also to Blondie's one way or another. And there's no explanation for how these sisters know the lyrics to this song um, in the course of the film because the both songs were written in the 70s and these sisters missed the 70s. They were brought back to life in the 90s and I guess, <laughs> I, I just don't know. Um, but the choreography that results from them singing and hypnotizing a crowd is very good, but there are so many plot holes here and there that don't quite make Hocus Pocus 2 even really better than the original. They did tame down on the virgin shaming, but that shouldn't have been the only weakness that Hocus Pocus 2 corrected. But still, if you're looking for kind of a fun Halloween movie, I did like Hocus Pocus 2 better than The Munsters, the film that came out last week that was directed by Rob Zombie, that is probably sure to be a midnight favorite. But I do give Hocus Pocus 2 my rating of a very marginal checkout because there are some improvements that this movie made over the original. It is fun to see Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Jimmy together again. I just wish they hadn't been so bogged down in product placement as well as rehashing of original jokes, but it did look like they were at least having fun. I also wish that the protagonists of the films weren't of this film weren't so bland with the exception of Sam Richardson. But if you're looking for a fun Halloween movie, 
this movie does do the trick and in some ways it's better than the original, but in other ways it could have been better, but I still give it a marginal recommendation. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is called What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of... October 10th through October 14th, 2022. And I will cover the movies that are coming out in theaters first. And the reason I'm going to do that is because there are only a select few number of movies that are coming out in theaters uh, nationwide and many more that are going to be coming out on several streaming platforms. And because I only reviewed three movies for this show, I am going to uh, get into this. Um, <laughs> full force. So anyway, the biggest movie that is subject to being released in theaters this uh, coming Friday, October 14th, is Halloween Ends, which like the last Halloween movie or the last movie that was called Halloween that came out in 2018 and the sequel to that Halloween kills, which came out last year. This movie is directed by and co-written by David Gordon green. And this is sort of the new Halloween trilogy, but the original Halloween was a, Oh, excuse me. The Halloween from 2018 made a really, really big mistake in having the exact same name as its 1978 predecessor. And there have been several movies detailing the saga of Michael Myers, because no matter how many times you shoot him and no matter how many times he seems dead, he always keeps coming back. Although this movie with the title Halloween ends promises that this will be his last time, but I very highly doubt it. But I really hate how the 2018 movie Halloween had the exact same name as the 1978 film. It could have been called Halloween returns could have been, could have been Halloween commences. The, these are not the most creative names, but they're the ones that I've come up with off the top of my head that at least differentiate itself from the original. And also the 2018 Halloween was not particularly scary. Halloween kills was even less scary. So I don't have very high hopes for Halloween ends. However, Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back as Laurie Strode, which she played in the original, as well as a few sequels here and there, including Halloween H2O 20 years later, which in and of itself was a more creative name than the 2018 film Halloween. But there are, um, I, I guess the only plot that I've been given or plot synopsis that I've been given here is that the saga, the saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode comes to a spine chilling climax in this final installment of the franchise. As for me, I know a lot of people are going to see this film. I'm just kind of bored by it. And I just, <laughs> I'm glad that it's going to end, but I have the feeling that a couple of years from now, there's going to going to be a sequel that's called Halloween begins again, because I don't think Mike Myers is actually going to die and I just don't really care, but I will see the film anyway. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. 
Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 14th is a movie that's called The Loneliest Boy in the World. Now, this looks pretty interesting. It already has a very catchy title, unlike the 2018 version of Halloween. And it is a modern fairy tale with zombies, which is amazing to come out on Halloween. But it is a satire and celebration of family values, of the imagery of horror films, of suburban life, of the American dream, and of the ultimate taboo, death. The movie does not give me very much of a plot synopsis other than that, but I'm already intrigued by the name of the film. The movie stars Hero Finds Tiffin, Ashley Benson, Ben Miller, Susan Wokoma, and Evan Ross, amongst other people. But I can't really tell you very much about the movie other than that. But I can tell you that I will see the movie, and I will let you know what I think on uh, next week's show. And it's also worth mentioning that there is one other film that is subject to being released in theaters on October 14th, and that movie is called The Inspection. Now, remember that this movie is subject to being released in theaters. It's not guaranteed that it will be released in theaters. But this movie is may be released um, in your local independent theater, but it is about a young gay black man rejected by his mother and with few options for his future who decides to join the Marines doing whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would cast him aside. Now, let me just say that Nowadays, with gay people being able to serve openly in the military, it's not so taboo, especially after the days where Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been cast to the side, that a gay man would join the military. But I'm still very interested in seeing this film. And it's interesting because the the protagonist in this film, the main protagonist, whose name is Ellis French, is played by Jeremy Pope. His mother who rejects him is played by Gabrielle union, which I can't imagine Gabrielle union being a mother who just rejects a child of hers, but maybe she has the acting range to pull this off. I don't exactly know, but the movie also stars Bokeem Woodbine, Raul Castillo, Nicholas Logan, and several other actors. It looks like a very interesting film as far as it's, independent movie credentials. It premiered both at the New York film festival at the end at the Toronto international film festival earlier this year. This is a movie I'm eager to see. I don't know if I actually will, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. If I do in fact, see it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters on October 14th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into what movies are likely to be released on streaming for the week of October 10th through October 14th. 2022. And usually I start with Netflix and today will be no exception, but there are very, very few uh, films, let alone Netflix originals that are going to be released on the platform this week. Because last week there were a ton of movies that were a ton of original films too, that were released on the platform. There was Mr. Harrigan's phone, which I just started watching, but I'm not going to review for you until next week because I haven't finished it. There was Togo. There was luckiest girl alive, the redeem team. And those are just the American films this week. There aren't very many movies that are going to be appearing on Netflix. There's one film that is called someone borrowed that will be premiering on Netflix on Tuesday, October 11th. 
And I don't exactly know where that film comes from, but it doesn't come from the United States. It's a film about a stubborn bachelor who hires an actress to play his fiance to fulfill his dying mother's final wish and try to avoid her deleting him from her will. So the fact that he has to hire an actress to play his fiance immediately tells you what his dying mother's final wish is. The movie stars Caio Castro, Danielle Winnitz, and Bruna Luis, and is directed by Chris Diamato. And I can't exactly tell you what country Chris Diamato is from, but he has many titles under his repertoire as a director that have uh, Portuguese titles. So I presume that Chris Diamato may be Portuguese or Italian based on his last name, but I can't exactly say, but I will say that I might see this film. It's no guarantee, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. If I do on Wednesday, October 12th, the only film that will be making an appearance on Netflix is a film called blackout that was made in 2022. And it's about a man who wakes up in a hospital with no memory and quickly finds himself on the run in a lockdown hospital with the cartel on his tail. He scrambles to find his true identity in the most vicious way. The movie stars Josh DeHommel, Abby Cornish, and Nick Nolte, amongst other people. It does sound a bit like Memento, and also like 28 Days Later. So it has some very big films, especially big independent films, from the last 20 years to which to live up. And who knows if this film's going to be good. I've seen Josh DeHommel in some films where he was kind of forgettable and in other films where he was charming. As an action star, I don't know how he's going to do, but I might give this movie a chance. For some reason, it's, according to my source material, it's not a Netflix original, but it's still... um, a 2022 film, why Netflix isn't claiming this film. I don't exactly know, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And on Friday, October 14th, the only movie that is appearing on Netflix that is a Netflix original is a movie that's called the curse of bridge hollow, which sounds like a film that would likely be one of those Halloween films and and probably the last Halloween film that will be released during the month of October. Any films that are released after that are probably late to the Halloween party. But I don't exactly think that I'm going to be looking forward to seeing this film because the star of the movie is Marlon Wayans. Yep. A Marlon Wayans film that is a Netflix original is usually never a good thing, especially since he's been in, well, largely crap films that have been comedies. But again, Marlon Wayans did actually impress me in the Aretha Franklin biopic Respect, but that wasn't a comedy. But Marlon Wayans is nearly 50 years old and is doing crap comedy again. But again, I'll give him a chance. But this movie is about a teenage girl who's not played by Marlon Wayans, thank God, who accidentally releases an ancient and mischievous spirit on Halloween, which causes deteriorate, excuse me, decorations to come to life and wreak havoc. And I almost said deteriorations because I guess when I think of Marlon Wayans films, I think deterioration, but he, uh, she must team up with the last person she'd want to, in order to save their town, her father. So, My guess is that Marlon Wayans is playing this poor girl's father, and I already feel really, really bad for this girl because Marlon Wayans is her father. But the supporting cast in this movie is actually pretty impressive. There's Nia Vardalos from My Big Fat Greek Wedding. There's Lauren Lapkus, Rob Riggle, Kelly Rowland, who's acted in some films, but it's largely known for having been in Destiny's Child and a few other people, but already the plot of the movie with with the exception of this girl having to team up with her father sounds a lot like the Hocus Pocus movie that I just reviewed. And it has Marlon Wayans in it, which doesn't give me very high hopes for how good a movie this could potentially be, but I will see it. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show, not necessarily next week's show. 
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on Netflix for this coming week, October 10th through October 14th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into movies that are premiering on other platforms, starting with Disney+. Plus. And on Disney Plus on Friday, October 14th, there are actually two films that will be appearing on Disney Plus, but neither of them are either new or Disney Plus originals. But largely, one of the films is one in which I haven't seen. I would have seen it if it hadn't been for the pandemic. I think just about everyone would have, or the people who are still on board with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but this one passed me by. The movie I'm talking about is The New Mutants, which was supposed to be released in theaters in August of 2020, but because of the pandemic, it was not. It is a movie that is a Marvel film that was also released by 20th Century Fox, which is now owned by Disney, and it's about five young mutants who just discovered their abilities while held in a secret facility against their will, who fight to escape their past sins and save themselves. The movie has a pretty stellar cast. It stars Macy Williams, Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Heaton, Alice Braga, uh, and several other actors, but no actors. Oh, actually, one of the characters is voiced by none other than Marilyn Manson. But even though this is a Marvel movie, I can't find any evidence that this is a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. It may be in the same sort of universe that other films like Venom, but The New Mutants is a film that I may not necessarily skip reviewing because I didn't see it when it came out, and I think this may be its first wide release, although I could be wrong about that. But I'll let you know what I think on a future show, not necessarily next week's show. On HBO Max, during the week of October 10th through October 14th, there actually aren't many films that are going to be premiering on HBO Max, but there is one that is an HBO original that will be premiering on Tuesday, October 11th. The movie is called 38 at the Garden, and it is a documentary. Specifically, it follows the cultural impact of NBA trailblazer Jeremy Lin during his 2011 through 2012 season with the New York Knicks and the cultural phenomenon known as Lin Sanity. Now, being that I am not um, a Knicks fan and know somewhat about basketball that I heard, it has been a really long time since I heard about Jeremy Lin. So long, in fact, that... I forgot about Jeremy Lin, especially since LeBron James and other auspicious NBA players have largely overshadowed Jeremy Lin over the last 10 NBA seasons. But this is a movie I might see, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. But other than that, there aren't any other films, let alone HBO original films, that will be premiering on HBO Max for the week of October 10th through October 14th, 2022. But on Hulu, there are some films that might be worth checking out, and I'm checking them out right now. There's actually a remake of Hellraiser that just came out, and I did not have time to review it, but maybe I will review it for a later show, but I don't have very much to compare um, to, to which to compare this Hellraiser movie because I haven't actually seen the original film. <laughs> I know. Kind of a crime, but there are Hulu originals that will be premiering on the platform. There's one actually that will be premiering on October 14th, and the movie is called Rosaline. And Rosaline is a spinoff of Romeo and Juliet, which William Shakespeare did not write. And this is actually based upon a novel that was called When You Were Mine, written by Rebecca Searle. And it is a comedic retelling of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, told from the point of view of Romeo's jilted ex, Rosaline, the woman Romeo first claims to love before he falls for Juliet. And for those of you who remember reading or watching Romeo and Juliet, Rosaline, at least as Shakespeare wrote her, is mentioned 
in Romeo and Juliet, but she's never actually shown or portrayed. I'm sure there are some directors who have either brought Romeo and Juliet to stage and maybe even some who have brought her to screen who have given some unlucky actress the displeasure of portraying Rosaline on stage, but William Shakespeare didn't give her any lines and probably didn't intend to have her portrayed in Romeo and Juliet at all. But this is actually kind of a fascinating take on Romeo and Juliet that is reminiscent to Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead because Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are two characters from Hamlet who weren't given any lines. They were referred to by other characters, including Hamlet several times during the play and were actually intended, unlike Rosaline, to be portrayed on stage. But they weren't given very much to do. But there was actually a... The person who wrote the screenplay for, or the script for, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead, actually gave life to these characters that William Shakespeare included, but didn't give much dimension to when he was writing. So... I'm interested being a fan of Shakespeare like I am to see what they do with Rosaline. And I didn't realize that Rosaline was Romeo's ex. I thought that very much like Juliet, Rosaline was somebody to whom Romeo put on a pedestal, but didn't actually date. So, and it's, I really have to go back to the Shakespearean text to realize what Rosalind's what what Rosaline's role actually was, but Rosaline is a movie that I will see. I may review it for you on next week's show, but I am very curious to see how this is. And by the way, I didn't mention I, I mentioned how the movie could be. I didn't exactly say what what the story or who was acting in the film, but the movie stars Caitlin Dever as the titular Rosaline. It stars Isabella Merced as Juliet. Good casting choice. Kyle Allen as Romeo. It also co-stars Bradley Whitford, Christopher McDonald, and Minnie Driver amongst other people. I'm very eager to see this film and I may let, let you know what I think on next week's show if I have time to view this film, but it will be on the top of my list. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.